Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Uh, you can hear I'm a little bit congested. You'll hear it throughout the episode you're about to listen to, but I hope that does not deter you because Kathleen and I had such a wonderful conversation about programming and uh, programs we wrote for a concert we just did with the Alabama Symphony. And we just wanted to share what the benefit of that was like and how we set the programs up. And it's just a wonderful episode about programming, something that I care very deeply about, as you know. So I hope you enjoy that. I just want to share two things with you before we get started. Number one, make sure to listen all the way through the episode past the outro for the secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. And number two, I want to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of product, services, and resources to the brass playing community. It's been a year now since the COVID-19 pandemic shut everything down, and we're still feeling the effects to this day. While it's possible to move about with more safety these days, it's still a good idea to be as safe as possible. In order to be able to serve their customers while acknowledging the need for safety, Houghton Horns has expanded their policies to include a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories. I've mentioned before that they have free in-person virtual equipment consultations to help you make the right choice. So pair that with multiple easy financing options when you do decide which instrument is right for you. Terms and conditions apply. And it's clear that Houghton Horns is making it much easier to test drive and purchase the best equipment during our uncertain times. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you are looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I am a very congested Ryan Beach, and I am here with my lovely wife, Kathleen Costello. Say hi to everyone, Kathleen. There you go. Uh, she's actually here. We wanted to come and talk to you today on this episode about programming. Uh, this is something that I've talked about before. We have an episode from about a year ago, actually, where we kind of dove into some aspects of programming, uh, kind of just the basics. And we wanted to come back and share with you some of our experience where we recently programmed for a pretty heavy concert with the orchestra. I'm going to let Kathleen talk about that and what that was and um, just kind of go over that in just a second. But the main goal of this is to just share our experience and the, with the value of writing programs to learn things, whether it's fundamentals or in this particular case, repertoire, and to sort of uh, provide some encouragement for you to write your own program, some encouragement for you to check out the Gold Method app, which exists on my website, that you can try out some of these programs uh, for yourself. Um, so that's kind of like the framework we're going to do. Uh, we're literally just going to, what I have written here is, uh, why we wrote the programs, how the programs were constructed, struggles going through the programs, successes going through the programs, what was the end result in terms of rehearsal, 
preparation and concert uh, comfort, I guess, and then things that went well during the process, things that we think we would change, stuff like that. So pretty basic stuff, but I wanted to kind of just talk about it. And um, I guess I'll just give it over to Kathleen. You can kind of describe what the concert was, how much time we had to prepare for it, and then maybe just from your experience, why you were possibly looking forward to using a program on Mm -hmm. it. And we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. So I think first off, just sort of, you know, explain to your audience how, I mean, obviously this year has been very different than previous years. Um, Of course, the biggest difference is that we've played a lot less and we've played a lot, we've played far fewer, um, you know, big orchestra programs and we've done a lot more smaller chamber pieces, which in many ways has been really fun to play some repertoire we wouldn't normally get to play. Um, but I would say another difference is is that often we haven't known <laughs> what the repertoire is going to be until maybe three weeks before, which is like our contract minimum, I think. So whereas normally we'd have like kind of an eye on the whole schedule for the whole year, um, we've had to sort of maybe pivot and make some choices about how to prepare in what might feel like more of a last minute kind of nature. So this spring... And of course, we'd been suggesting or maybe asking to play these pieces for a long time, but uh, Soldier's Tale, Stravinsky's uh, L'Histoire de Soldat, and Stravinsky's Octet um, for wind instruments uh, appeared on the second to last week of the season, along with another piece by Revoltus. And so that was a pretty big program. For me, I had played Soldier's Tale before, but it's been a long time and I had never played the octet. So you and I talked about this and we thought this might be a perfect program to try a program, one of your programs. And we we tweaked it, I think, right? We started with something a little different and we ended up um, with a program that I think worked really well. And... This year, this COVID season, in some ways, has been really great for that because we haven't, I didn't have to try to implement one of these preparation programs on top of a week where maybe we were, you know, had, I don't know, 10 to 15 hours of rehearsal plus concerts and preparing, you know, the next for two weeks out or something like that. So it was a little more, I don't want to say relaxed, but I could really focus on on that. We had some other things too, Appalachian Spring and um, some other things, but that was really the main focus, the Stravinsky program. Yeah. And Kathleen played the octet and the soldier's tale. I ended up having to, through um, no design of my own, but I had to step in at the last second. And I was originally only going to play those two pieces, but then um, our second trumpet player had to step out um, because of some family uh, stuff going on. And so I had to play the whole concert. And so uh, I'll speak a little bit at, after a while of how I learned this Revueltas piece in basically like 30 or 45 minutes. Um, but we'll start with the programs. I kind of just want to, I, I, I'll try not to make this too technical, but I want to give you a sense of what goes through my mind when I try to de- develop one of these programs that might be able to help you listening kind of get a place to start. So generally speaking, especially when we have a performance at the end, of a particular cycle of practicing that will really inform the structure I use. And so there's three pretty distinct phases I try to program for. And 
in terms of the programming, these phases may allied with each other a little bit. There may not be a clear break necessarily, but in terms of the mental approach that I'm using in these different phases, it's pretty clear. I'll be thinking, you know, a mental space for one thing. And when I feel like I've accomplished that, I'll move into trying to accomplish something else. So these three phases that I try to program with are called the acclimation, the ingraining, and the peaking phase. I made these up. I stole them straight from uh, working out, uh, from programming, from a fitness industry where they have a a volume, a realization, and a peaking phase. And it's just different phases that you organize the training a little bit differently based on how far you are away from a particular goal. So that's where you start, right? And so this is basically saying in the acclimation phase, your main goal is to learn the material. That's really all you care about. You care about making sure you understand every articulation, every dynamic, every uh, rhythm and things like that. And of course, you want to understand the music as well. But you're really trying to get nuts and bolts of the piece down. Um, and you're generally going at slow tempos. And so um, this is going to be 50, 60-ish percent of your, wherever your goal tempo is, or a one rep max, if you want to put it in fitness terms. The next phase is going to be the ingraining phase. And you're basically going to take the knowledge you got from the acclimation phase and begin to apply that in every single repetition you have working your way towards the goal tempo. So you're still playing in these sections that you've, I'll talk about this in just a second. You're still playing in these sections that you've broken the piece up into, but now you're worried less about trying to learn everything about it. And you're more concerned with now that you have learned things about it and you feel confident that you know your way around the sections, you want to improve imprint that every single time on your way up. This is how we begin to make it more habitual the way that we uh, play the music we're doing. So it's a little bit less like I have to think incredibly hard and a little bit more I've developed sort of the way to navigate this and I've imprinted success multiple times throughout the process. The last phase is the peaking phase. And in this phase, you're basically trying to reflect the fact that we want to perform at the end of this. So instead of playing in sections, now you're probably running whole movements or a whole piece of music. And you're much more concerned with your musical presentation and refining the musical presentation. So you basically, your nuts and bolts work is over. You need to get all of that in in your first two phases so you can really hyper-focus on making sure you're saying what you want to say musically. And um, there's no real length to these that matters. Um, but generally speaking, your longest phase is going to be the middle phase, the ingraining phase, generally speaking, depending on the repertoire. So do you want to jump in and say anything at this point? Or should I just keep going with how I constructed the actual programs? Um, I think it's important to, in this case, explain this. And this is what you were calling the one, two, three program, right? For me? Yeah. Right. Okay. So I just made a program that you could change the length of it based on how long you had to prepare. I see. I didn't even realize that's what the one, two, three stood for. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think I think it's important too because personally, I mean, this differs from your etude sort of program format. This difference differs from your fundamental fundamentals program format, and I think that's an important distinction because there are some different needs, obviously, mm -hmm. when you're preparing repertoire. In particular, I feel orchestral repertoire, and this would sort of fall into that category where you've got just um, 
maybe a wider range of difficulty. Sure. So you're not going to need to be spending the same amount of time on, you know, different parts of that yeah. the, the work, obviously. Yeah, the etude program that's art that's available right now is more designed for uh, etude that's about two to four minutes in length. And generally speaking, of course there are exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, most etudes are about the same difficulty throughout. And so it's designed to basically treat everything relatively equally in that because you're more or less you probably playing something that's of equal difficulty. Now, in something like a soldier's tale, you have the gamut, at least for the trumpet, you have the gamut of things that are like you know, easy stuff. That's you want to make sure the rhythms in the pocket because Stravinsky can be difficult. So you want to make sure you cover it, but you don't need to practice that much as as much as you would need to practice the Royal March or something like that, which is among the most technical things we have in our repertoire. So the way that I organize this, I will try to make this as easy to understand as possible. But it, it's some in some ways it probably easier to see. I designed a program that you could say I want it to be one, two, or three weeks. And depending on what you put, it would give you a different length of a program. So I actually ran a three-week program, and Kathleen ran a two-week program because she had a, a concert, uh, Appalachian Spring, that she needed, that she was getting ready for the the first week. When I was practicing my week one, she was practicing a different concert. So um, what we did is basically week one was the acclimation phase. And so it's defined by... Um, what you're going to do, you're going to take a piece of music and you're going to split it into as many sections as needed. The program I wrote, you could break the piece in, into 20 different sections. And that seemed to cover all of the Stravinsky, both Stravinsky pieces fit into about 20 sections. Maybe we left one out here or there. And then from there, you're going to, I basically try to have an A day and a B day. So all of your odd sections will be on your A day and all your even sections will be on the B day. This will make it so you can invest a little bit of time instead of trying to play everything every day. You can play half of the material one day and actually do some repetition to help you be able to improve. And then essentially you're doing three repetitions per section, uh, per practice session. So I started... Um, I guess the final part of this is each section I would denote easy or hard. And if it was hard, I would start I would start the very first week, the very first repetition at 50% of your goal tempo. And if it was easy, I started it at 65% tempo. And then from there, every tempo increase was 4% of whatever the tempo was before it. So if half temp if your section was at 120 beats per minute and it was a hard section you would start at 50% which is 60 beats per minute and then your next tempo would be 62 beats per minute because that's 4% higher than 60 and and so on i know that like, there's a lot and like i said maybe a graph or a, a spreadsheet might help with this but essentially we did that because we wanted to progress in the slow tempos. Like we wanted to progress. We didn't want to just stay at 50%, but we knew we needed to put in some quality time. And that 4% thing really helps with that because it does event end up becoming exponential because the numbers get higher. And then as a result, the higher the numbers, the higher four, what 4% is then a higher thing. So you start going up by threes and then up by fours, depending on the what tempo you're at. But it does allow you to spend some quality time at the slower tempos while still feeling like you're actually moving forward. It's a really nice balance between those two for me. 
So then in week two, at least for my three-week program, that was the ingraining phase. And so what we would do is we would have a more or less a top tempo, right? For each section, you would have a top tempo, and it would be somewhere around 90% of your goal tempo. And you would essentially run it. You would essentially run the section and kind of see, all right, where am I at after a week of slow tempo? And then from there, you would do what I call rehearsal performance rehearsal, which is, I'll explain that in just a second, but rehearsal performance rehearsal to touch up any sections. And then if it was an easy section, that's all you had. If it was a hard section, you would get one more run of the piece at 90 or so percent. And then that just progressed over the course of the week towards 100%. So you're still playing in sections, but now you're around 90% or better for these runs. And then the last week was the peaking phase where I basically played all of Soldier's Tale one day and all of the Octet mm-hmm. the other day. Mm-hmm. And I tried to get in about, I mean, I think I got in two, but I would have liked to have gotten in about three performances playing with a recording so you can kind of get a sense of how you fit in with things. Um, of course, setting a score is going to be valuable in that way. Kathleen, I'll let her speak to what she did to add to her preparation for the octet because I knew that piece already, so I didn't do quite as much as she did. But playing with a recording can be valuable because you're getting the sense. What you're trying to do is mimic performance in that peaking phase, and so it can really help you feel like you're... Sometimes you're dealing with intonation issues and st- or, you know... Maybe groups speed up or you can't tell when you're going to come in because you don't have an actual conductor, but you do the best you can with something like that. Um, What you're trying to do is just gain familiarity of what it feels like to go from I'm playing these individual sections to putting them all together and playing them as a piece. That's more or less. I wanted to go over that because I want... I wanted to try to demonstrate again where it's in prose, like I'm speaking about it, so it's hard to possibly visualize it. But there is some thought that goes into this. It's not just like, oh, it's super easy, you know, and we just do it. Like there is some thought that goes into what we're talking about here. And, um, I, you know, but it's worth it. And we'll talk about why it's worth it as we go through this process. But just know that if it's hard for you, it was hard for me too. I've just done it a lot because I believe there was a lot of value. And so even a bad plan can still teach you a lot about how to make better plans. So why don't you share a little bit about some of the extra stuff that you, maybe the extra program stuff that you would have done in ways you slightly adjusted it for, especially for the Mm -hmm. octet to be able to help you get a broader sense of the octet quickly. Yeah, well, I first wanted to say that I think, you know, especially for, you know, oh, okay, so backing up, I think one of my big practice room mistakes is often I become kind of obsessed with, you know, some parts that are really technically difficult, right? So I'll spend, you know, a lot of time on those parts and maybe not enough time sort of integrating them back into the piece in a way that I understand it in a more like deep deep way, or even sometimes I'll neglect a part that looks easy, but then I'm not, you know, keeping in mind that there are other things that can make it complicated, or maybe I won't, like I said, maybe I won't understand it as well as I think that I do. And so I think for something like Stravinsky, where there's so much rhythmic complexity, this was such a great way to do this and to work on it because it really did deal mostly in larger sections. So I found myself really, you know, counting through a lot of those complicated sections. And then, you know, I didn't have that last week that you were describing. So I kind of, I didn't, 
Well, I guess I had a couple of days. Maybe I had two days as opposed to a whole week. So I spent those two days really same thing, playing with the recording. If it was foggy or I wasn't quite with it, I'd go back and I'd kind of work on it until I felt, felt like I really understood um, how the, you know, I had been practicing the rhythm. But unless you program a metronome, you know, with all the mixed meter, it can still be complicated to work it all out. So um, I just wanted to put that in there. That And like for Kathleen's two-week program, so to what I described to you was my three-week program. So if you're curious about what it looks like to make a two-week program out of that, you basically shorten the phases, right? Mm-hmm. So you're thinking about it in terms of the phases and you just shorten it so you can fit it into there. So I think mm-hmm. your yours had still one week of the acclimation phase, four days of a ingraining phase and two days of the peaking phase instead of one week for each. So that's really how... And then I think the one-week version of it just doesn't have a peaking phase. I think it's yeah, like four days of it. it yeah, mm-hmm. You sort of just have to move on through it. So the shorter the program, you make some sacrifices and you make some compromises. But like it can be okay, especially sure. if you actually have rehearsal well, at the right. end of the program. And again, then, I think it depends on the complexity of the work or if it's something you're super familiar with and you, your your ear is really um, you know, strong... It's programmed in the way that you know you you understand the phrasing and how the piece sounds. Then, you know, maybe it could easily be solved by listening with your part or listening with the score. You know, in addition to the actual work on the instrument that you're going to do. So, yeah, I don't think everything would. You know, we all know this. We different levels of difficulty require different amounts of time to prepare. So. Uh, but Stravinsky is challenging. And interestingly for me, I just wanted to put this out there into the ethos that, you know, I had played Soldier's Tale before, but in a way I felt like, I felt almost more confident on the octet, which was kind of shocking because I had never learned that before. I mean, I'd listened to it, but I'd literally never practiced one single lick or part from from that piece. So it was really encouraging to get to the first rehearsal and feel really confident and to, I mean, there are some places where I did sort of like it was faster than I thought it was going to be, actually faster than what I prepared it up to. And I could feel my fingers just going, you know. It, there's been very few times in my life where I felt that and sort of realized, oh, I can, I can trust this, you know. And as we all know, with Stravinsky, you know, often there'll be sharps and flats within the same line or, you know, the patterns aren't, you know, typical diatonic patterns or chromatic patterns. It can go in any direction. And um, just the solidity of this work of starting with those slow tempos and just committing to that um, type of progression really paid off. Ryan is adjusting my microphone because he thinks I'm not talking loud enough. No, you're just not talking really into the microphone. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I mean, we'll we'll move on to the rest of the discussion just in just one second here. Although I should address the RPR thing at the rehearsal performance rehearsal thing. But what you just described to me is the value of the programs. Is instead of it being like, oh, I like understand or I learned this thing, cool. Understanding and learning is just one facet, one part of the program as a whole, which seeks to be able to have you have it ingrained as basically a skill. 
that you own this skill of performing the octet. You own this skill of playing Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale, right? Like you, that it's not just like I can do it because I have the general ability on my instrument. This is how I used to think, actually. I used to think I would just be able to play the trumpet so well that I could play anything. Mm. And there's a lot of value to that in for like learning music quickly and being able to sight read. There's so much value in that. But in terms of self-actualization, being able to play at your absolute best, this kind of work we're describing is how we unlock that last... You know, I've been asking that question for a long time. How do I get that last 5 to 8%? You know, How do those soloists do it? Mm-hmm. And this is my answer. I mean, maybe they have a different answer, but this is my answer. To unlock that last percent is to actually dive in, learn the intricacies of all of these licks speed them up in a way where I'm maintaining those good habits that I understand and then being able to allow myself to have make some space and some time for performance. Yeah, I think too, like one way this really differs and I, I know there are people that have this figured out and, and this conversation is probably not for those people, but, you know, for me, and of course, you know, I'm a mom and, you know, for a while I was like a single mom and you just, you know, you get the time in where you get it, you know? So I think a lot of my professional life, unfortunately, has, you know, been, you know, trying to find the time whenever I can, you know? And this type of preparation where you're really, you're preparing for that performance date and um, in this extremely intentional way. And I can attest for me, it's really translates to more confidence on stage. So much more confidence because I just don't, I don't feel like there are any surprises. Now that doesn't mean there aren't mistakes or that I won't space out and do something stupid on stage or in a performance or in a rehearsal. That's not what I mean. Everybody, mistakes will still happen. We're not looking for perfection, but that overall feeling of command of the material, that your mental map is clear. And as Ryan knows, and maybe some of you, but I'm sort of obsessed with this idea of the mental model and the mental map of what we're doing, both musically and and what this, you know, programming does is it, I think it really creates this clear sort of technical or, you know, musical material map for us to work from. So maybe that's a good jumping off point for the yeah. rehearsal performance rehearsal. So I'm not going to go fully into mental rehearsal right now. I have a YouTube video that I just released. And so if you want to check that out, that'll be a, more, a little bit more in-depth look into what mental rehearsal is and why we would use it. But as a quick overview so we can understand what rehearsal performance rehearsal means, um, basically... I don't really isolate things in my practice very much anymore in terms of I'm going to take this section out and play through it slowly. I try to do as much of that in my head as I possibly can now. You okay? Yeah, it's a sneeze. Suppressing a sneeze, sorry. Sorry. So what this looks like for me is I basically will finger uh, and and I'll finger along with my playing. I'll make an embouchure. I'll blow an air pattern. I'll try to guide my air in the shape of the line, but I'm not actually playing my instrument. And what I want the goal of this work is to expose either one yet I have a good connection to my mental model, and thus I can vividly imagine what I'm what I would be playing. Or two, I can't vividly imagine what I'm playing and it has become clear to me that that is why I might struggle playing this. is not necessarily because my technical facility is stopping me 
or or just because because I can't, right? That's what we usually. Oh, I just can't do that. But rather, it's because I don't actually understand. I don't have a clear picture of what I'm trying to do, and so in that second week of the ingraining phase, I'm much more concerned at that point with trying to ramp things up. And I'm not necessarily performing full movements, right? But I'm trying to ramp the tempos up. But I still need to give myself a space to touch up things, to make sure I'm not just saying, well, I'm never ever going to practice something in an isolated way ever again. So my solution that I was trying, I don't know if it was right or wrong, but I made an educated guess that if I run the piece at a 90 to a 90, or the section at a 90 to a 95% tempo, then after that, I basically would say, all the things that went well, let's assume they go well because I understand it. The things that didn't go well, I'm going to mentally rehearse just that part, just that measure, just those two measures, whatever. I'm going to mentally rehearse that at a slower tempo, and then I'm going to perform it. I'm going to actually play it. And then I'm going to mentally rehearse it again. So I got three repetitions out of that, and two of them could hypothetically be perfect because there's research out there. Again, we can talk about this on a separate podcast, but there's research out there that basically suggests that if we can vividly imagine something to our brain, in many ways, it's the same thing as actually doing it. So we want to try to actually take advantage of that and abuse that to, to the maximum ability because especially as a trumpet player, I get... Um, I don't beat up my chops as much and I still get repetitions in, right? So we're trying to replace the idea that the only valuable work to do in a practice session is just to play, 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 play and start to reimagine what a practice session looks like based on trying to understand what the problem is. And if the problem is you don't have a clear mental model of what's going on, just playing through it may not be the most effective way to solve that problem. So I do a lot of mental rehearsal in my practice now to, I think, great effect. And I'm just trying to share about what it is. I don't, for that, for trumpet, that's what it looks like. Again, I'm trying to actually finger along. I'm making an embouchure. I'm making an air pattern. And then with my air pattern, trying to actually follow the shape of what the line would be with my air. Um, and basically, you're trying to mimic all of the physical components without actually making sound on your instrument so that your mental model, what you hear in your head, what you're imagining, takes the place of what you're hearing. Uh, if you've experimented with it much, what does it look like on clarinet to to do it? What what because it may not be the same thing as what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm I've experimented with that some. What you're describing with you know mimicking some of the physical movements and patterns of actually playing without creating the sound. I've also done it where I've just felt my brain firing neural signals into my fingers and just tried as hard as I can to hear what it would sound like in my mind. I would consider and, that to be visualization. Yeah. Right. So well, and and for a lot of people, like these are very similar. And so I don't actually think it's important to make a mm -hmm. distinction, but if we were, to me, visualization is like purely mental. Like you're trying to vividly imagine the whole process. And with mental rehearsal, to me, you're adding in that extra layer mm -hmm. of like I'm kind of going through the physical motions as well, just to try to in, and to me they're they're just for different purposes. Yeah, and I th I would encourage people to experiment with both, for, for sure. sure. And um, oh gosh, I was just sort of turning some analogies over in my head as you were talking, and I think what we're what we're really advocating big time here is more mind and less body almost, right? So more of your more engagement of your mind and potentially less engagement of your physical body. So if you struggle with 
tension, um, if you struggle with concentration, I mean, I think all of us struggle with probably both of those things. This can be a great way to work on, you know, relaxing physically while you're thinking through those things. And like we've talked about, you know, when you don't, when you're not allowing your fingers to go on autopilot or your body to go on autopilot, you have to engage your mind. There's nothing else then that will create the sound, right? It's it's in your imagination. So you have to be concentrating. And as you do that, you strengthen that muscle. So I would almost liken it towards, you know, I think, again, in America, we tend to be obsessed with amount of time. Like, well, I practiced for four hours today and feel incredibly virtuous about you know, some length of time that we worked on something without a lot of attention, maybe. I mean, this is more of like a school thing, like a conservatory thing, perhaps than in, you know, busy adult professional lives because often we can't afford four hours, but maybe not um, thinking about the quality of those four hours of work. So it's almost like if you need, you know, if you're looking for some caffeine, it's like the difference between, you know, a cup of coffee and an espresso, right? Like an espresso would give you maybe as much or more caffeine as the cup of coffee, but because it's like, you know, more intense and concentrated. So I think this work for me has really shown a lot that would be equivalent to that analogy. Like I'm maybe spending the same amount of time or maybe even slightly less time, but it's so much more... Uh, valuable. And also then again, if we are concentrating, you know, you can expect to be mentally drained maybe at the end of the day, you know, and this kind of taps into like, I'm obsessed with flow state too. And what we know about that, that flow state can be incredibly productive, but it can be draining because, you know, you are so engaged in that, in that thing that you might find that, you know, you're spent after an hour, yeah. after 45 minutes, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I basically, to, to follow up with that, and then I think we should kind of um, move on to some of these other points that we want to discuss. But to follow up on that, I just want to say that, you know, Kathleen's talking about getting more value out of it. And the, the it's an interesting thing to say that because we have to quantify what would determine value to be able to say I'm getting more value out of it, right? And so to me, the value that we're trying to get out of a practice session is that it is affecting positive change toward the goal that we have. And especially in a program like this, we're trying to make it so that we can perform this thing that we want to perform at a high level. And so if that's generally the goal of practice, right? The general the goal of practice is to be able to express ourselves the way we want. If we have chosen a piece of music that is an appropriate challenge level, that will be an important caveat to what I'm about to say. If we have an appropriate level of challenge and we don't perform well, then our practice did not prepare us to do the thing that we wanted to do. It does not mean it was not valuable because we can learn a lot from that if we are seeking to understand it. But generally speaking, that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to practice so that we can perform well. And if we're not performing well, most likely our practice, we need to look at our practice to ask how we were not prepared. Not just like, whoop, that just happened. Sometimes we make mistakes. Those happen. But when a performance just does not go well at all, there's probably some underlying cause. And it could be mental, could be spiritual, could be a lot of different things. But let's assume to some degree, 
like a thread that will always exist is your practice system did not prepare you. So that's really what we're trying to get at here is how do we develop a system that we can trust that will lead us to be able to have confidence in performance? Like anybody wants this, but that's our job. <laughs> that's our job. We, yeah, we want to make sure that we want that we are prepared because that's literally what we're supposed to be doing. Like we have no other function attached to what makes us our money. We need to be performing at our highest level possible. So that's sort of a, a, a way to sort of, at least in some ways, cap that off. Is like that's how we determine success. That's how we determine the value of what we're doing. And if we feel more prepared and we're spending the same amount or less time, that's how we would equate. I got more value out of my practice. Is that I felt as prepared as normal, and I spent half the time doing it. Or I spent about the same amount of time, but I felt like there were no problems at all as compared to normal. So we aren't trying to be comparative in a sense of judgment, but they're comparative in the sense of science experiments is incredibly valuable and important. You know, that's how the scientific method works. We test something and then we test another thing and then we say, what's the difference? That's what we're doing with our practice sessions right now. So because, like through that, what for you, Kathleen... Did you what struggles did you experience going through specific to the program? Like what challenges did you feel like following the program presented you with? Okay. Well, there's a couple of things. I think in the beginning, it's always a challenge because, you know, at those slow tempos, it does take a little bit longer to get through all of it. So ideally we would schedule our lives accordingly, which that can be tricky, right? I mean, if this early work falls on a time where you've got other performances or maybe something else in your life is taking a lot of time, then then that can be a challenge. But it does get better pretty quickly. So I think that, you know, as humans, we it's really helpful to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel or to know that, okay, I'm gonna have a couple heavy days here at the beginning, but then next week it's gonna it's gonna be different, you know? So that was the first thing I think just to sort of acclimating to that and it's not even it was just more time intensive at the beginning. And then the second one that I would say is trust. So I think especially playing an instrument where, you know, we have a lot of technical things to do often in orchestral work. And this might be in contrast, right, to like what you've described, a lot of orchestral, especially the type of repertoire we tend to play here, doesn't really challenge that sort of aspect of your trumpet playing. Yeah. I'm sure your audience probably knows this as well. But clarinet, that's not really the case. I mean, we have, you know, you know, Beethoven is challenging for us, you know, for many reasons, all of it. So... I find that to not be able to obsess over, you know, one lick ad nauseum for whatever period of time I feel like I need to obsess over it is almost anxiety inducing, you know? So to sort of, to trust the, the process that it will be enough is new, you know? And we even, this will, we might get into later about ways to kind of adjust the program slightly uh, to, you know, maybe... Uh, meet a compromise with that somewhere in the middle because I know many people out there might be thinking that same thing or have that same, not complaint, but issue with trust, you know? I mean, I think we, we've talked about a colleague of ours who quotes a famous uh, sort of idol on their instrument that says, well, you know, you're not ready if you haven't played that lick 
what, a hundred times? Like, have you counted? On the day of the On performance. the day of the performance. I mean, so that, that represents an extreme, which I don't even come close to agreeing with or even identifying with, but I think it, it does represent that idea that, you know, what, how many repetitions do we need to feel confident yeah, about I mean, executing? That's how that conversation came about as I was at the, I was at the beginning of all of this and mm. like asking questions of repetition and how many repetitions do we need? And I, I, I remember coming up with like three like three repetitions per Yeah, I day. think I might have looked at you sideways as yeah, well. Yeah, Kathleen was like, oh, that surely can't be possible, you know? And I was talking to, yeah, this colleague, and and I I was just, because I, I love his playing. I, th- I think he's an incredible, he's got a prominent position in the orchestra, so you hear many solos. And I was like, how many, t- like, how many, how do you know you're ready? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't know. I was like, do you have, like, how many repetitions do you think you'd need to, like, if I told you that three repetitions would be good, would you believe me? He's like, I don't, I don't think so. I was like, well, how many would be good? How many do you think you need? And he just couldn't answer the question was the point. And I thought that would be so interesting, you know? Yeah, this might be a bit of a barrier to entry for some people because I think this, this mindset is so strong, you know, throughout the, the industry. And again, like it really goes back to what does confidence mean on stage? And actually I was listening to another podcast today with somebody I really respect and gosh, he just dropped so much wisdom on, and I won't reveal who it is, but on how we just operate on this culture of fear so much on stage. And it goes a little bit to what you were saying, like this is our job, we get paid. So we feel like there's so much writing on it. You know, if we make a mistake, it feels like the end of the world, you know? And then someone will say, well, you know, you're not a surgeon, like no one's going to die if you make a mistake. And and that's true. And in some ways it's an important thing for us to sort of latch onto and remember. But I do think that this is, should be an, if it's not an ultimate goal for all of us, this should be an ultimate goal. How can we prepare so that we feel confident and then, you know, learn how to let go so that we can play with abandon, you know? Repeat the thing that you, some of you. Yeah, it was in Karen's oh, so episode good. recently. She just she was talking to a friend, and this friend told Karen, she said, "If you don't accept that your worst performance is a possibility, you won't have access to your very best performance." I've been thinking about that ever since you told that to me. Just because I think the longer I think about it, the more true that I realize yeah. that is, and our just our fear in letting go. And we're getting off topic here. I'm sorry. Right. I know it's, it's not. Okay. But I think it gets to the heart of of why we care about preparation so much because obviously it's, you know, if this is what you do for a living and you're not just, you know, playing after dinner with friends in your living room, which is also wonderful and I hope people still do that in the world, you know, that's what we're working for. We're working for that performance date or for that audition or for that thing that matters that we care about. And, you know, in my mind, any any tool or like you're saying any information, like if we sort of apply this, like that's Jason Haheim idea that he's really championed, you know, this idea, the scientific method, applying that to our process, you know, and that if that continually refines our process, then we will logically get to the point where we will be able to prepare better, you know, more intelligently. And this exists in so many places. This idea that I have preparation and you trust the process. That's 
This is why people have coaches. This is why people have coaches who have mastered these ideas of how to prepare for things, you know, because an athlete is too close to how much they care. I mean, this is true. They're just too close to it to be able to accurately program. They're too close to themselves and what their own biases are and how they feel that they need to do things. Like, that's why they have coaches. So these coaches who are thinking rationally and logically will take into account their strengths and their weaknesses and their lifestyle and their nutrition and their sleep habits and build something that is sustainable that will allow them to reach their goals. Now, I don't have enough, in this particular instance, I don't have enough research, like actual data to understand how to do that yet. But I do believe in the efficacy of there is these work Right, these programs, mm-hmm. even though what I wrote, I would change what I wrote for us, it worked like a charm. You know, spoiler alert for, for later. And the idea is, is that we, in some ways, what I think we as human beings tend to do is there are certain like principles of, like, let's say in this sense, progression. There are certain principles of developing skill that exist that we need to adhere ourselves to. Like we're we don't we're not the person that's like the exception to the rule. Most of us are fit into the rule. There are some people maybe who exist outside of that. But understanding what the rule is is the conversation we're having right now. You know what I mean? I think sometimes we just don't have that conversation because we view music as this ultra personal thing. And I don't I mean, I agree that expression is ultimately individual and personal, and it should be that, or else everybody's on the same and it would be boring. But the idea of how we develop skill and how our bodies, which like operate on like motor patterns and and neurological signals, you know, that kind of research applies to us. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this many times just between you and I, but, you know, just as like to throw this out there, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows this, but have, how much have we thought about this? You know, unless you are a, an absolute like a level soloist, classical music soloist or a conductor you know, you, we are in a poor field, (laughs) you know, this is not like athletics. And, you know, I read something several years ago that was basically saying like research often follows the money. So, you know, it's not surprising that they figured this out in athletics and places where there's so much more money to be made in that sort of larger scale. And we're kind of left to just figure things out. And, you know, I mean, as orchestral musicians, we can't, you know, afford to have a somebody coach us through every single concert or program we have. We have to do it on our own. And that would be in contrast to like these top level athletes that not only have a coach, but like you said, they've got a nutritionist and they have, you know, a trainer. And I don't know, they've got like a sleep specialist. They've, they've got like, you know, a whole sort of bevy of people that are there to help them play or perform at their at their peak because so much money is riding yeah. on that right yeah. but not so for us so well um, and I want to get into a little bit of that discussion I mean not quite that discussion but it'll be tangentially related mm-hmm. to that discussion at the end um, so you talked about the struggles from uh, the struggles being the time it can take, especially at the beginning, and the other struggle just being trust in the process. For me, one of the struggles that I experience, I don't experience them hardly at all anymore because I just trust the process so hard. But I've been doing this for more than a year now. So it's I'm coming at it from a different place. When I first started, 
some of the part that was hard to trust for me was that it didn't immediately get better. Like it wasn't like day one, everything was fixed. You know, just make sure you're talking right into the mm -hmm. end of it. Um, day one, it wasn't immediately fixed. And what I noticed was that after day four or day five, there was like a light switch that would happen. And all of a sudden, everything was easier. But what I had to do, as we talked about the mental model, is basically what I was trying to do, even when things didn't feel amazing, was still trying to imprint the mental model on what I was doing. So regardless of if it felt amazing or not, I was saying, this is what I want to have happen. And I'm committed to imprinting what I want, regardless of how it feels. Because ultimately, what we're doing is we're learning a motor pattern, right? So we can sort of learn any new motor pattern. But if we default to what feels good, we might not ever be able to slip out of that into what might be more efficient or more effective for our overall playing. This happens with posture all the time. That's a great example. Posture, people sit, myself included, like kind of hunched over and it feels good. Well, that's not proper posture, but it feels right. And then when you start to sit up straight at first, like it feels uncomfortable, but that's proper posture. This is a great example of this concept that if we result, or sorry, if we um, fall back on what feels right to us, we're just, we're never ever going to break out of where we're at because that's what feels good is what got us to where we are. But what will take us past that might not be that. We might have to embrace a completely different idea or we might have to change some way we do something completely. And it may not be that drastic either, but the idea that we have to be open to new ideas and we have to be open to new things. And so what I'm, I guess the whole point of this is that I myself, I have a very strong idea of what correct is, whether I'm doing that or not. And I'm always trying to imprint correct instead of just saying, I just want this to feel right right now in this moment. I don't really care about this moment. I care about the performance. And I care about my ability to play that whole concert at the same level the whole time and not have my chops break down halfway through and things just fall apart, which did not happen. So there's a part of that that's involved with me that took me some time to understand that the process does take a little bit of time to really kick in. But once it kicks in, it's almost like you're riding a wave because you just learned the things you needed to learn. And that's when the acclimation phase is over and you're into that ingraining phase where things are almost easy. You just need to focus insanely hard to maintain that level of high level playing. I don't know if that was your experience uh, at, in, this, in this instance or not. Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, I think that, again, in this culture that we live in right now, and for whatever reason, this has become very prominent in the orchestral world, like that we, you know, we really um, treasure our comfort. You know, we like to, like we start, I think, and, and maybe it's not just a music thing, but you work so hard for so long and you sort of almost... I mean, I can personally totally relate to this, but you almost feel like you work to like earn comfort, right? Like, well, and you've talked about this too. You like, you just sort of thought that you could, you know, kind of cultivate your talent and work really hard. And then it would just be like, you'd arrive at this place and then you'd just be there, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, and, and part of that being there in that place, I think in our mind is this sort of like, you know, perpetual level of comfort and contentment and that's just not true. Like all growth is going to require 
some discomfort. So as long as we're not, you know, pushing that into some unhealthy like physical boundary or, you know, emotional or mental suffering that we don't actually need to do, but pushing your, you know, expanding your own boundaries and expanding yourself and what you're capable of that is going to involve some level of discomfort. And we need to learn to embrace that as part of the process instead of just deciding that if you feel that it must be wrong. Amen. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the week of the performance. Um, because I know okay. we had slightly different experiences and I, I want to make sure I, the thing I want to speak to mostly is just that first concert where I was saying I felt really uncomfortable, but still was able mm. to play well. But I want you to speak because I know you said that even throughout the rehearsals, there were still some things that didn't quite line up, especially in the octet, right? Like there was just some things that no matter how prepared you were, you had to feel it out with other people around you. And so I'd just be curious if you want to speak to, you went through all this preparation, two weeks of really intense, like scrutinous work, and then you got into the rehearsals. And what was that experience like for you? Well, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. So I have a lot of data to compare it to, I guess, in terms of that and and learning something new. And it was really positive, I would say, start to finish, you know, Um yeah, and I actually don't think it wasn't the octet that I felt. I think it was a surprise because it was actually in the Soldier's Tale. And but again, that's just such a complicated, difficult piece. There's there's so many meter changes that just don't feel natural. Like you and I were talking about this, and hopefully some people out there listening can relate and understand what I mean. But the more you know, I think you can be a hundred percent prepared and still feel thrown by the way that he manipulates the rhythm and the feeling of the down meat and things that we um, sort of give us a sense of like gravity or groundedness in music that we all, we rely on because that's part of what, you know, makes music go and work. And because he was such a master at manipulating that feeling to his, you know, however he wanted to, you know, manipulate that for what he was looking for. He did that brilliantly. So as performers, you know, again, we are subject to not feeling comfortable <laughs> as mm-hmm. we're carrying out his wishes. Um, but yeah, I would say it was just, it was really positive. I felt like I could be present, which, you know, in my mind, that's equivalent with flow. So I was, certainly wasn't in that flow state the whole time. You know, my fear or my nervousness certainly took me out, um, you know, some of the time that we were rehearsing or performing, but it was, yeah, I felt like I could be there. I felt like I knew, and this, you know, when my first piece coming back after COVID was the Mozart clarinet quintet, and I had this experience there too. Like, I just felt like I knew the piece so well or well enough that I could be there in a supportive manner too, like to my other colleagues around me, which is awesome. You know, like if you have enough like mental bandwidth left to kind of feel like you can have your radar, your antenna up for for them and what's going on around you, that's ideal, I think, in terms of making music with other people. Yeah, I was speaking about this with Susanna Klein, uh, Practisma um, on Instagram. I just interviewed her, so this will come out one week after that. And we were talking about nerves, and we were talking about auditions, and I know I've spoken to Kathleen about this, so 
Uh, I'll just share it here though. Uh, auditions are about the only thing I get nervous for. And so I've been a player that has totally relied on non-thought to, to play my best. I basically will go into a performance and say like, I don't really care about what happens. I'll just what stop thinking almost. And, and, and to some degree, that is how we access the subconscious. Like we want to quiet the conscious mind or occupy it, right? So, excuse me. What we want to do is, is, is have it so that our conscious mind is not actively coming against us, which is where we get those negative thoughts or we start to judge ourselves or we start to focus on things in the past or the, or the future and we're just not present like you described. Being able to be present is essentially what we're looking for. And so in auditions, because I was so used to needing to not think to play my best, uh, I would start. I would be like, "Okay, everything's great. I'm prepared." And then this voice would come in the back of my head and would say, "Yeah, but if you win this job, that'll be awesome." And I just couldn't get that voice out of my head. And because I didn't have any strategies whatsoever, that voice would be something I was fighting the entire time. And I couldn't replicate this. I don't get nervous for other people. I, I mean, I just could not replicate it whatsoever. Interestingly enough, the very first night we played Soldier's Tale and Octet. I was like 30% that nervous. Mm. And it's because I cared, right? I allowed myself to care. I removed that safety net of saying, I don't care. So if I didn't play my best, I was like, well, whatever, I don't care. And I said, I care about this. I want this to go well. I'm prepared. I can do this. And I was really uncomfortable for a lot of the night. I wasn't necessarily totally relaxed, but I felt like I played great. Mm -hmm. I still felt like I played really well. And the the difference was, is I was prepared enough and I knew what, what I wanted to say to myself mentally during the performance. I knew that I wanted to tell myself whenever I got off track or when I was feeling uncomfortable, just reminding myself of a few cues, most notably air forward. That seems to be a cue for me that works really well. And I think about auditions and how helpful that would be. And I'll probably have to take an audition again. Probably. To, to really test this. But... The idea that we're taking these negative thoughts, these things that are taking away from our conscious mind and not necessarily saying, don't think that, but we're actually just purposefully thinking of something else that's more productive. And that really worked for me. The second night I was, I was more comfortable. I felt like I was, you know, you just did it once and, and you felt better. But the first night I was still able to play near my best, what I would consider to be my best. And I was really uncomfortable. And that was such a cool effect of preparing this way for me is because in all of my practicing, I was thinking air forward, you know? In everything that I did, I was instilling exactly what I wanted to have happen when I performed. So when I got there, it really felt like it was not a different experience from what I had prepared in the practice room, even though I felt I had put more pressure on myself because it was the performance and I felt more perceived pressures, I would consider it. So that was a cool effect for me. Yeah, I think you hit on two really important things. I promise this won't take long, but <laughs> one of them would be something that you preach a lot, which is that under pressure, you fall to the level or you fail to the level of your systems, right? I don't preach this a lot, but the quote <laughs> is, we don't rise to the... Mm. We basically fall to the level of our training. Right, so... That's the first point I think that's important here. And the second would be... I think a cool way to say that too, sorry. Ed, Ed, uh, oh my gosh. He taught trumpet at, at IU. What is his name? Oh my gosh, what's his last name? I can't think of it. 
His first name is Ed. I'll think of it, and then I'll jump back in somewhere. But he told me once when I was in Indianapolis, um, when under stress, we regress. Mm, yeah, I've heard that That's one like too. a really cool way to think about it, that we mm-hmm. regress to whatever our de- default is. And right. we want our default to be something that we have decided, not something that we never thought of. Right, so. and I think the second thing that you're really starting to get at here is that you know, we need to train for the specific event that we're doing. So just like, yeah. you know, uh, like for you, like a powerlifting meet would be different from a bodybuilding event or a strongman event. You know, we should think that an audition will be different from a performance or, you know, preparing for a lesson or I don't know, fill in the blank, you know. A, a season of opera performances, like all these things, like, you know, your preparation, your training should be different and not just physically what we do, but mentally how we perform from, for, you know, prepare for that. Yeah, totally. I mean, to use that as an example, the deadlift is an incredibly useful exercise, but a strongman, a powerlifter, a CrossFit athlete, and an Olympic athlete will utilize it completely differently in their training. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact exercise, but they use it completely differently. And it's 100% dictated by what their goal is of training. What are they trying to... Um, what are they trying to ingrain? And so we need to think that way. As musicians, we have to think that way. We need to get our practice to start looking like what we want to do. It can't just be I did my fundamentals and I did this routine that was cool that someone told me to do and then I practiced the piece of music for a while and I I have no idea why I can't perform at a higher level. Well, our practice needs to reflect the demands that performance puts on it. So the first, like, just for example, one thing that that means is we need our practice to reflect the fact that we need to perform our best on the first try. Right. That's like, let's just say right. that one. Like if your practice doesn't reflect that, your practice is not preparing you to perform well. Right. And we might be using the wrong excuses for why it's not going well. You know, it might not just be your nerves. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Or it might just be like, you know, you feel like your brain leaves your body or something. I don't know. It may be that you, if you tried to actually do that thing in practice, you might not be able to do it. You know, on the first try, like what you're saying, maybe like if, I mean, I'm totally guilty of this, like, and I, I had catch myself doing it. I'll mess something up in a run and I will stop and go back, you know? Yeah. Right. And it's difficult for me to ignore it and to keep going in practice, even though of course that's what I would do in a performance. No question. And I mean, not to put too fine of a point on it, but this is a good time to address this, that this is why I believe so much in providing these structures is that like, I don't actually care. Like if someone doesn't believe in themselves or they don't believe in what they know or their ability, you know, that's a mental and a spiritual issue for sure. But I really believe through providing structures that work for people to be able to try out, like you can kind of prove to yourself that it's just a lack of knowledge and a lack of experience that's stopping you. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily that everything is wrong and we have to redo everything. It's just like, what if we learned how to practice and then see how what that did for our for our confidence. Right. And then like those successes, like if you have a success, you build on that Absolutely. success and then you start to see yourself and like this is so much of a to your self image. Do Absolutely. you see yourself as somebody who gets up there and like 
appears confident and feels confident, or if you don't feel confident, you can fake feeling confident and then plays to the level of their preparation yeah. to their best day in the practice room, or maybe even like your middlest middling day in the practice room. Yeah. Like if you can do that, that should build confidence. Then you build on that person. You start to shape the person who you want to be as a performer, like based on those successes. Yeah. I mean, for me, I feel like I'm a great example of this where for a long time I saw myself as someone who just, you know, put in the amount of work necessary to get by now I totally identify as someone who puts in really detailed work. I'll tell this story because I think it'll be interesting. Many, many, many years ago, some of you who have known about um, uh, know about that performance on YouTube of Northwestern's Trumpet Ensemble playing the Poet and Peasant Overture. This would have been 2011. You'll know what I'm talking about. That trip... I, we were at um, Stuart Stevenson's house. He's principal trumpet in Atlanta now. We were at his house. There was a group of us there, uh, that group who played. And I remember that the Chicago Symphony played Soldier's Tale. And we all tuned into the live broadcast and we listened to it. And, and Chris played the, the Royal March especially. I mean, we listened to the whole thing, but the Royal March especially, when he got done playing it, I just looked at everyone. I was like, oh my gosh. Like you can hear how much work he put in to be that consistent and that that much ease. And then I said, I just don't want to do that. 2011, I just don't want to do that. And now 2021, when I played The Soldier's Tale, that's the kind of work I put into it. And so if someone's not at this place, I am in no position to judge anybody, <laughs> right? Because I was there. I totally understand. Like maybe you don't want to put that kind of effort in. But there's a massive difference between the player I was on that soldier's tale and who I was before that. Mm -hmm. You know, I just didn't want to acknowledge that there were levels left for me to do. I wanted to pretend that like things were great and I sounded awesome. Or maybe I wanted to be comfortable. Yeah, maybe I didn't or, want to push into where I could be a better player, but it was harder and had to think more. And I was going to fail more often trying to find what that looked like. Yeah. And I'm obviously not a psychologist, so I have no basis or bearing to say this, but also we can't neglect the power of the human mind to, you know, compensate like, or what you said, a coping mechanism. Like you had come to rely on this coping mechanism of if I convince myself, I don't care that much, then I can mitigate my nerves. I can, I can manage this situation. And so this new, this version of you represents just a, you know, more evolved version that you will get even better results, but you're not relying on this fact that you don't care, which obviously has other negative, you know, side effects. Like maybe it works on one level, but it's damaging on another level. So we all have to kind of, you know, consider that we all, you know, like we are continually remaking ourselves, right? If, if we're lucky, <laughs> we are, you know, working on ourselves and we're, you know, having these like mini rebirths of ourselves so that we are evolving, um, not just getting better at our instruments, but that ideally we're enjoying it more. We're, you know, all the things that we've been talking about so that it's not just, okay, I, you know, I get through my fear or my anxiety with these sort of coping mechanisms, but can we break through, you know? And I, I do think, I do think these programs are a step in a, um, in the right direction towards, 
um, you know, just learning more about how each of us as an individual works in preparation and then towards this goal of performance. Yeah. All right, moving along. This is awesome. Um, this is the most important part of this whole conversation. Oh, okay. We'll have some more after that. This is the most important part. What would you change about it? So the only change that we discussed about this particular version of the program is that I think for... So clarinet, and I would assume... I Not assume, I know also like for flutists and violinists, you know, we may have you know, one or two sections where we've got like this in, you know, kind of exponentially more like layer of difficulty. Maybe it's like two or three measures or eight measures or 16 measures. It's not a whole piece, but there'll be something in so many pieces that we would be stressed about or, you know, um, needing time to work up and prepare that just would be, it wouldn't be um, as simple as like, okay, this is, almost sight readable or what we would call in like the simple category and then like, you know, difficult. Like there's like another sort of layer of that. And so I think maybe having, you know, one more category for those, you know, intense things that you want to see every day that you maybe want to, you know, you maybe don't need a hundred repetitions of it. That's insane in my opinion, but more repetitions or a little more attention on those things. So that would be the, the thing that I would would want to include one more sort of category. And it wouldn't take much time, right? Because they're not typically super long in length for most things. But just so, you know, those passages that, that you don't want to be get through the performance and be like, oh, I just wish I had like taken a little more time and felt a little more confident about those spots. So that yeah. would be my, my one takeaway. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would, well, there's a few things I would change. I think the first thing is, is I would uh, adjust, I would, yeah, put fewer repetitions for the easier sections, and and put an a, a, an extra section for the more difficult stuff. And then I think I might just make better uh, delineations of sort of the acclimation and ingraining phases for the shorter programs. I think I didn't necessarily. I think I maybe had one phase a little bit too long, so to speak, and how we divvied that up and. So, you know, the reason to me this is, you know, they're not huge changes, but the reason to me this is important is because this is how we end up getting to the better and best programs is you have to try something. You have to make an educated guess based on what you know. And then you have to say, I'm going to put the time in on this program because I made these choices. I made these choices for this reason. So I believe in it. And then you do it and then you see if you were right. This is again one of the reasons I wanted to do the Gold Method app on the Etudes first, is because like Etudes are just they're they're practice aids, they're they're tools we can use to explore musical ideas in a little bit more depth than just basic fundamental exercises. They're studies, that's the translation exactly. of Etude. But the idea is is that we're we're doing something where it doesn't really matter. There's nothing on the line, but we can still have a plan we can commit to, so you can kind of see what this kind of work it does. I mean, we tested it on repertoire that mattered to us in a situation that mattered to us. And we were testing a program that was good. It was great. I was happy with the result, but it wasn't necessarily the absolute best. But mm -hmm. that doesn't matter. Like the overall idea that we could create 
over time, a system that we would totally buy into matters more to me than any one performance. The, 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 acu- the accumulation of knowledge of how we should, uh, I guess, commit to any individual process, that's what matters to me more than anything right now. And I can say that a little bit from knowing that I'm basically like never going to not be prepared for a performance, you know? So we're talking levels of being really prepared. But I think that's what the converse, most musicians, again, this is, it goes back to saying if we have something of an appropriate challenge or appropriate skill level, if you're asking yourself to play something that's way too hard for you and you apply one of these programs and then you can't play it, well, you know, I mean, that's like possibly we should have assessed or assigned something that was a little bit more within range, so to speak. You're not always in control of what you play. But I guess the point of all of this is, is I'm willing to sacrifice. And conceptually, I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of performance quality to find out my program didn't work. Because then I get to know how to make something better. And then I get to hold that forever. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think you touched on something really important. And like at this stage of the conversation, we should distinguish between students and professionals. So students, you know, you are a bit at the mercy of your professor, or your teacher, and you're trusting that they're choosing etudes and repertoire that are appropriate for you. I've come across things as a professional that to me, haven't been playable. I mean, I'm sure there's some clarinet player out there that could do it. You know, I'm not saying that. Martin just because <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty phenomenal. Um, so I'm not saying because I couldn't do it. That means nobody could do it. But, um, you know, and in those cases, you know, you basically like, you. I mean, gosh, unless I was going to devote like half of a year or like a year to, but, but you, you could. We do could, but... I mean, if it's something that shows up on your like orchestral roster, like, you know, come on, like we can't, you know, you got to evaluate what is the, you know, what's the the payoff? I mean, there's no, we, that would mean that you'd sacrifice so many other things. And so then, you know, we learn how to, it's not the, the best in the context of this conversation, but to sort of fake it on a professional level, right? Like make it sound like you're doing the thing, the the effect that they want and you do it with flair and you you figure out how to do it as a professional. So I think that's something different than giving a student a concerto or a sonata or a piece of music that is beyond their level. So, and, and we have many examples of yeah. that being played at extremely high levels, even by students so that they just feel like failures. I think just to, to delineate those distinctions, they're not the same thing and we shouldn't put them in the same category. Yeah. Sorry. Like these programs are generally designed. I mean, they could be designed for anybody, but they're designed for you to take a piece that is either in your skill level or slightly challenging. It's not to say this is going to be the thing that allows you to play something you're completely incapable of playing. And the point is is that we should be trying to think of ourselves in that in that way. We should be trying to think like what am I capable of and how do I how do I prepare something at a high level? Not how do I just play some piece of music that I really want to play that I can't play but for me, it's fun to just like fail at it. You know, maybe I, I think I was like that when I was younger. I think a lot of people are like that. And I think, I think there's a general trend out there that we will, I mean, I don't know if it's a trend. I just think it's a way that we can think about progressing, which is I will assign or I will, I will assign myself or maybe a teacher wants to assign a student 
repertoire that's too hard for them. And, and the pursuit of trying to uh, become better at that will be the thing that drives progress. And I think to an extent that can be good, but you know, that's a, you know, there's a fine line. Yeah, there's there. such a fine line to walk. And right, I agree. Sometimes that can push us to the next level, but we have to be so careful what those pieces are because that stays with us, right? The mistakes stay with us. The bad performance experience stays with us, right? Like going back to Soldier's Tale, also cycling all the way back to that, you know, um, not every performance I had of that in my past was positive, right? There were some things that went wrong that felt not devastating, but like not great, you know? And the, those, unfortunately, those negative experiences really stick in your memory too. So, you know, if you, and this isn't even the greatest example of that, but if it's like, you know, the Mozart concerto, for example, for us, and it's given to a student too early and they end up having terrible habits that get embedded, you know, a, a horrible mental, you know, picture of what that experience was like, those things stay with you. And that's like the first thing anybody hears on any audition ever, not to mention it's one of our greatest like masterpieces that we have on the instrument. So I think we just have to be so careful of not ruining that experience for students and making sure we're presenting these pieces when they're ready to work on them. The good news is let's do these programs. It's a very effective way to weed out bad habits too. Um, that you may have had, but this is an effective way to do that. I've learned this piece incorrectly. I'm just going to start from the ground up with these programs and build in the good habits that I have now that I want to relearn. So there's some evidence there too for the value of the programs of I just want to learn this thing the right way, whether you have an, like some relationship with it or, or not. So the very last thing I would like to cover here is I just, I was listening to, or sorry, I was I was on Instagram just, you know, scrolling through as fast as I possibly can, not actually looking at anything. But I came across just, you know, a few posts here and there that would, you know, give some advice or some tips or some this or some that, right? And it got me thinking about the difference between what we're talking about here and that. I think... I even put out Tip Tuesdays, right? So I think there's a lot of value in giving little bite-sized pieces of information that um, people can chew on. I think that there's total value in that. What we're talking about here is not that. What we are talking about here is not the next best exercise or mm -hmm. the best warm-up or try this new trick or here's this mouthpiece that's going to be good. or it's, it's not that. What we're talking about is nuts and bolts, we're talking about this like plug and play and getting the security of a plan so that you can see if you're struggling with productive practice or you're interested in new ways of thinking about it so you can see what that looks like. We're talking about really well thought out practice structures that you can follow repetition by repetition. I hope that distinction makes sense. It's a little bit less vague. And so I'm not going to say there's less flexibility because I think you can learn to use it that way. But I would argue that in the beginning of using this, there's, there isn't much flexibility. And that's the point. The point is trying to say, here's something that is really well thought out. There's, I mean... We don't have to get into it, but there's there's actual research behind the way that I've put these things together. It's not just like I felt like this was right. We're talking about these four percent increases. The uh, the way I actually put together the etude program is you have your starting tempo and then you go up three four percent increases. So starting tempo plus four percent plus four percent plus four percent, and then you go back one, and then up 
up four mm-hmm. percent, up four percent, up four percent. The reason I do that is because we have this concept of progression that looks like two steps, three steps forward, two steps back. I just built that into the process, right? So there's there's a thought process behind every single decision I made of why that thing looks the way that it looks, right? So I'm saying, try out the way that I do it exactly the way that I do it for two weeks. Right. See what that's like. Adhere yourself to this and see what the difference is. I'm not saying that my practice system is the best. I'm saying that it's very well thought out. And there, even if you don't end up using it, you might be able to take something yeah, from it. Yeah, I guarantee it. it will teach you something. And the you know, 4% thing goes back to your interview with Lynn Heilman and all of her amazing research and work on flow state. And yeah, just if you're interested on that, go back and listen to that episode with her and there are other resources on that as well. But this, you know, if we're talking about science and documentation, like these are things that are actually been studied and, you know, proven to a certain extent. So it's not, that's not starting from zero. It's starting from a place of, of logic actually. So, um, yeah. And so to tie it back to what you were describing earlier about following the money and, and stuff, I mean, the fitness industry has a lot of money and there's so many YouTubers and so many coaches and so many this and so many that. It's very interesting though when you go on YouTube and you look around, the videos that have the most amount of plays are like, try these you know, six best bicep exercises possible <laughs> or like do this one exercise to grow your back or like three tips to fix your deadlift, right? It's it's like very exercise specific and it's very tip oriented. Mm, sure. And so the, the there's videos out there that will teach you about programming. There's videos out there that will teach you the nuts and the bolts of understanding how to say I have this goal, here's how I reach it. Those videos have far fewer plays. And it's because this is like what oh, generally God. speaking it seems like is people want this quick fix. Mm-hmm. They want this thing that's like I want to try a new exercise so the gym is fun. Or like I'm not getting better at my deadlift. Tell me the one exercise I need to know to get better at my deadlift. What they need is an understanding of how to progressively get better at the deadlift, to assess their weaknesses, to get better at it, and to assign maybe one exercise that will address that weakness, not just be this one magical thing that's going to fix it. And that's why I brought this up is because we're not talking about this one thing that's going to fix everything. We're talking about you understanding how to get better at your instrument through practice structure, which is ultimately giving... To me, it will empower people to feel like they can make their own goals mm-hmm. and and reach them, right? It's not, it's not like you're... You shouldn't feel like you would need me after a while. You know what I mean? Like maybe you need my information for a period of time or our information for a period of time, but the goal is that you would do it enough that you would be in control and in charge of your learning and your growth. And we're trying to get away from these little tips that are like, cool, but like, what does that actually mean when I practice? Well, How do I What does it add up to, right? Like, yeah. You, you hear a tip like, practice slow. Okay, here's all the questions I would have about practice slow. How slow? For how long do I practice slow? Right. Do you know when, what- when do I practice slow? Do I do it at the beginning? Do I do it throughout? Do I, as a point where I stop practicing slow? There's so many questions I would right. have about practicing slow. And like, 
everybody probably has those questions. So it sounds really good as a soundbite, but it, I, does it actually help us? I don't know. Right. This totally, I have a good analogy, I think, of this. So we've started watching, or well, I have with the kids, our kids, started watching the great British baking show. <laughs> and it's like, why is she talking about this? Uh, but one of the things they do, one of the challenges is, I think it's recreating one of the, you know, legendary um, host, well, they're judges actually, their recipes. And, but they basically say, you know, it's very vague, right? They'll be like, you know, mix flour with sugar and, you know, do this, but they don't give, like you're saying, they don't give amounts. They don't give lengths of time in the oven. They don't give oven temperatures, you know? So they're saying like, essentially, we'll give you the outline of what this recipe includes, but you have to know, the technique of how to create the thing. And so it really does, it tests their technical knowledge of whatever given thing that they're trying to. And of course we all know, I think we all know that baking is a very technical thing as opposed to cooking, which is about a lot more, you know, improvisatory and you can create results that um, could be really good without specific measurements or times or oven temperatures, but baking is very precise and, it's amazing what it reveals, but it totally reminds me of what you're talking about, right? Like, yeah, a few tips on Instagram or from your, you know, things that we can like spot off in the course of like, you know, 30 seconds is not going to, I mean, maybe it'll change your life. I don't know. Like you can, I don't you, think can the goal you can write in and say like this, I, I heard this one thing and it revolutionized what I do. Maybe that's true. But in general, yeah, we're, no, those are not the things that will turn you, make you feel like a different person in a year, right? Yeah. Well, I think what I'm trying to say is that those tips can be and are valuable because they're being shared from people who believe them. And I'm not trying to take away the validity of that. I'm just saying <laughs> oftentimes they're shared by people who like understand how they're implemented and how exactly how they implement them. And when they say that thing in their mind, they know exactly what that means for them. But sometimes it's lost in translation of what it would mean for others, right? And so the vast majority of people are left with like, you know, if you have an incredibly motivated individual, I would consider myself to be in this thing, you'll figure it out. Like you will not sleep, you will not eat until you figure out what that thing means. If you're not like that, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to actually say, here's the recipe. Mm-hmm. You know what right, I mean? Right, like, right. I'm trying to say, here's the recipe. And like, you may not like the way this thing tastes, but you'll learn how to cook it. And then you'll learn how to do your own yeah, thing exactly. with it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I, I, want, I want people to know how to practice. And you know, for a long time, to be, to be perfectly transparent for a long time I was scared to share some of what I think and what I believe about this kind of stuff because I was afraid like well would people need would people need me after that you know what I mean and then I listened to this thing with Dave Tate today Dave Tate is the owner of uh, Elite FTS which just supplies everything you could ever need for fitness but he's an incredible coach he's an incredible powerlifter and and he was saying like his whole goal is the is to the is the next person. His whole goal is to influence somebody that could influence a thousand people. Mm. And he's talking about he doesn't care about like money. He doesn't care about anything. He just wants to share information because he wants the community to be better. Mm. Because he feels that that information deserves to be out there. And he, you know, so that's that's I, I want to em, I want to be I want to emulate that more. 
Sure. I want to share the information because I believe the community deserves to be thinking like this. Because I, you, we, as we've just discussed this whole thing, we found so much benefit from this experiment with our mm-hmm. practicing. And I want others to understand that it's not, it doesn't have to elude anybody. This is all available to everybody, you know, at, yeah. at the level that they're at, of course. Sure. We're not going to say that in like two months, you're going to go from, I can't, I'm a sixth grader, I can win an orchestra job, right? We're not talking about that. But we're saying at the level that you're at, it might help you be able to refine what you're doing. And then it also might be able to help you ask some meaningful questions towards being able to reach some goals that you have that seem far off. And I believe very deeply in what we're talking about here. You know, the Gold Method app is on my website. I'll leave a link in the bio. Gold 21. Try it out for free for a month. I just want people to use it. It does not matter to me if you use it after that. If you use it and say, that's cool, I'll never use it, but you take something from it, I will consider that a win. Mm -hmm. But if you use it and it ends up being awesome, it's 10 bucks a month. So, like, it's not, we're not trying to make this an inaccessible thing. I just, want people to know what that feel what that feeling that we experienced i want more people i would like more people to know what that feels like definitely i i mean i think there are a few investments that would be as worthwhile you know i mean i have a spotify account we have a netflix account we i use both of those things all the time and i really enjoy them this i feel like is equal among those things and like we've talked about there are plans in the works to be adding to the the menu of offerings in terms of what types of programs are available for what you're working on. And yeah, we're working on right now a fundamentals app. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, there's so many countercultural things I think that we touched on, but I think it's just an exciting time to be not just in the world or, you know, in the field, but just, I think there's like a sea change of, you know, moving from proprietary information and protecting ideas to more of what you're talking about, just information being there available. And hopefully like some of these things can just, you know, just begin to take the place maybe of the fact that as musicians, we can't afford that, you know, you know, Olympic level coach or whatever, you know, or even like your teacher, you know, we can't afford to have teachers for life. Like, I mean, maybe I'm sure there's some lucky people that can do that, can, can hold on to that, but you know, we can evolve in our understanding of how to progress. Then we should embrace that. Yeah. And I believe another, another uh, thing I spend a lot of my time doing is watching speedrunners play video games. <laughs> and one of the most fascinating things about that is they're all competing with each other, but it's not cutthroat. When they, I watched a video actually about Super Mario Brothers, right? And and this is such a fascinating video. Super Mario Brothers won the world record for the warpless is like four minutes and like fifty nine. I forget four minutes and fifty two. I forget something. Maybe it's like just less than that. This idea though is that they set this record. They got it under five minutes. And then there was what's called a tool-assisted speed run, which is basically a computer where you can do things like press two buttons at once and do all these things. So you can do things that humans can't do. Mm. And they let's say that they this tool-assisted speed run got it down to four minutes and 54 seconds and 29 milliseconds, right? 
So basically what happened over the next like 12 years is they just, as a community, mm. as a community, they all started searching mm -hmm. for how to lower it and, and find human solutions for these problems. And as a community, it wasn't like one guy was in a room by himself doing right, his thing so right. he could be the best. It was like everybody was sharing information mm -hmm. so that everybody could have access to this thing. And it's so fascinating to me because you would, it's like so counter to whatever, but like they build this community of people who are all rooting for each other. You know, like mm -hmm. the this person who has the world record is rooting for this other person who's about to get a personal best. But we don't have anything like that because there's no such thing as a personal best in what we do. There's no such thing as like, here's my own journey mm -hmm. and here's my personal best and here's what I do. It's like you want a job or you don't have a job. You know, you're 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 you've made it or you're not, right? And mm -hmm. what I what I would like to do is through these structures, I'm trying to demonstrate it. I don't know if you guys have checked it out on my YouTube channel, but I'm actually trying to demonstrate that on my YouTube mm -hmm. channel right. by using this gold method app to practice very difficult etudes for me and share what my personal best looks like by sharing my very first take of mm -hmm. a recording. It may be perfect. It may not be perfect. But the point is, is to say, this is the best I'm capable of to record like what looks like a personal yeah. best. Yeah. Because I want, I want this, I want the music world to start to view things as like a community. Mm -hmm. We're all, and like we have that with studios for sure, music studios. But we sort of lose that when you leave that place where everybody's rooting for other, other each other to be great and do great. But you lose that when you leave but we don't have to necessarily do that. And thinking about our journey as like PRing or getting personal bests, right? Mm -hmm. Like I played this etude six months ago and then I played it again and it was better. It's a personal best. Like that's great. Yeah. We should be focusing on those kinds of things mm -hmm. rather than like, well, have I made it to where I wanted to go? <laughs> you know, am I the absolute best? Mm -hmm. Like who cares about that? I mean, I care about that, but like... I'm trying to care about other things. I'm trying to put other things in its place because mm -hmm. that's not a very fulfilling way to go about things I have found. Being the absolute best or pretending that mm -hmm. you're in the conversation of being the absolute best. It's just exhausting to live that way. And it's much more fulfilling to focus on how am I going to be better than I was a month ago and then keep doing that over and over. Well, one more like larger cultural example and then we'll wrap it up. But, you know, for years, I'm not going to remember the name of the person who first broke the four-minute mile record. Roger but, Bannister. Oh, oh, see, I should remember that. Yes. So Roger Bannister was the first one to break the four-minute mile record. And then all these people after that broke it, right? And it just shows like we have this like idea and the collective conscience. It's not just like us of like what human barriers are, but then someone shows us and then... It's like this open door for everybody. So we'll just leave that as the analogy mm -hmm. for, you know, if we can all contribute to, you know, this idea of human progress and on our instruments, but we are in this together. And I think all of us ultimately want the same thing, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. So there you go. Ed Cord. That was the trumpet ah, teacher. You did it. I, you yeah, remembered. I figured it out. It was in your brain. Yeah, he was awesome to me when I was in Indianapolis, um, as was many people. But um, I remember that quote, and I remembered his name. Okay, we're going to call it there. I think this is a very, for me, it was, this is an awesome discussion. I hope that uh, for anyone listening, this was thought-provoking or 
you know, maybe it just led you to uh, being able to uh, dig into some things that maybe you've been struggling with. Um, if you need to get in touch with me, um, well, if people want to get in touch with you, maybe they connect with something you've said and they want to get in touch with you. Where would they do that? Uh, I have a website, KathleenBCostello.com. I'm on Instagram, same handle. I'm on Facebook. Um, yeah, send me a message. I'd love to connect with anybody in your audience. This is such a great resource for people. I think it's great that you're still doing this and putting stuff out every week. So yes, reach out. Cool. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, that's not spit.com. That's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or you had any feelings at all, if you wouldn't mind giving it a rating and a review on iTunes and don't forget to share it on social media so other people can find it. Thank you for joining me, Kathleen. This is for me. This is great. I, I enjoyed this vibe a this lot. This is fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Uh, maybe the wine helped. <laughs> what wine? <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. And we'll see you in the next... Uh, we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 that's not spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. It's summer once again, and to beat the heat, I usually just move to a different state. <laughs> but actually, it is really hot out there, so remember to stay hydrated, stay healthy, stay in the shade, and don't push yourself if you're feeling too hot. It can be really nice to work and play outside, but it's not worth your health. So stay safe out there, and remember, shh, don't tell Ryan.